Hey folks, Scotty Keogh here. Now, a wise man told me once, if you're gonna take advice off someone, just make sure he does it for a living. Cause if he gets it wrong, it affects his table. Now when it comes to feeding horses, I feed Riverina products. They've assembled this product with not only the best team of nutritionists available, but also collaborating with some of Australia's most prolific horsemen who have shown more horses and won more blue ribbons than anyone. So if you want to do the best thing by your horse, trust the professionals and use Riverina. You're listening to the Swapping Lies podcast with Scotty Keogh. If you want to take your horsemanship to the next level with downloadable videos, equipment, merch and DVDs with proven results, visit skhorsemanship.com.au and find out why they sell in nine countries. With Scotty's clear, understandable methods with no gimmicks, just authentic horsemanship that will make your next ride a better one. Okay, folks, Scotty Keogh here, Swapping Lies. Well, look, today, to introduce this man, it's really difficult. It's one of the rare moments that I'm lost for words. Quite simply, he's done it all. He's been a pioneer and he spent a lifetime in the winner's circle. From being a successful cattle buyer, dealer, to a very successful rodeo rider, camp drafter. So let's just cut straight to the chase. We're going to go to Maxville on the north coast of New South Wales for one of Australia's very, very best. There is only one, John Stanton. How you going, John? Uh, uh, Scotty, I'm pretty good, thank you. Mate, uh, how old are you, John? Uh, I was 92 last October. All right, I mate. And uh, what do you do with yourself uh, at the moment to keep yourself active? I know yesterday you said you're out helping shoe a horse. Yeah, well, if you're riding you got to shoe them. And uh, I'm in the throes of uh, not doing anything important. I'm just... Go from birthday to birthday. I, yeah, I'm treating life as day by day. Yes. Right, mate. Well, uh, look, I think you've got an extraordinary tale to tell, and it doesn't just start with you. It starts with your family. Um, can you please uh, go back? Uh, I know your grandfather had a massive influence on you. Can you tell me a little bit about your, your childhood and and just how the Stantons came about being horse people? Well, that's true. There's no doubt about that. And um, my involvement with my grandfather was all the early years of my life. Every time I got a chance, he either came and picked me up or I took the opportunity and went and stayed with him. My mum and dad had a good home for me always, but my grandfather took a special interest in me as a young fella, and I don't regret the opportunity. Right. So um, your dad got shipped off to war, mate, is that right? So your, your grandpa sort of took you on a lot more, is that right? Well, as I got older, eight, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old, there's more opportunity came with my dad than my father because my father went to the war. Yeah, that left that grandfather was always had a big interest in doing things with me and taking me about and looking after me. That's for sure that's what happened. So can you tell me a bit about your dad now? Was he like a classifier for the war horses or something? Can you tell me what he actually did? Well, he went in the army and he certainly, he, um, yes, he was... He was a, a classifier and he went with a horse buyer, I believe, 
the captain and himself, and he sort of he was a selector for what they wanted, and they called them out for colour and uh, anything wrong with the horse. No doubt they vetted him out, but he was he's a pretty important left hand or right hand help to the captain. But him and the captain had words and he jobbed the captain and pretty soon the captain sent him off to the war. <laughs> Their relationship ended there. Yeah, right. So can you tell me, John, the horses they were buying for the soldiers, were they mainly unbroken horses or were they trying to find broken-in horses? Well, no doubt they bought a lot of unbroken horses. That was um, the job of the remount depot at Holdsworthy. Then they later moved on out to Spring Ridge and they were there for quite a while, but they broke horses to ride and travel and uh, in harness to suit what was required for the war. Right. What? And just on average, how broke would they have been? Would they have been given 20 rides, 10 rides, 50 rides? What do you think they would have had done with them? Well, John? look, I, I, I did visit the place, but I wasn't young enough to care or worry about what they'd done. But they'd be proper broke horses because they'd have to hand them over to shoulder, soldiers that they didn't know where, how good the uh, horse person they were. There'd be no point handing them over buck jumpers. I don't know whether they culled horses or they mastered everything that they bought. I'm not sure of that. The pick of the horsemen that wanted to be involved, they were the men that was in that part of the army. They were experienced. I don't think they took anybody into the remounts that, or that section of the army, uh, breaking in, handling horses. They didn't have a fair bit of experience before they went there. Right, eh? But I think the horses, when they got in the army, I think they went through the school and it was they weren't trying to train them to be camp drafters or peg event horses. They just were mainly and driving horses and pack horses. Yep. Okay. That's what I believe. I, I I was too young to take any more notice of what was going on other than what I was told and what I saw at the times that I visited there. Right, oh, mate. So at what um what age were you, do you think, when Dad went to war and you moved in with, with your grandpa? Did you get pulled out of school completely or did you? Like- no, 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 no. We're living in Tamworth. Dad... Was a driver and worked on stations and one thing or another, and we're just a, a very ordinary working family, but we're always involved in horses. Okay, so how far did you go in school, John? Approaching fourteen or something like that. Went was in second year at high school when I quit. Okay, can you remember what your first job was? I went rabbit trapping when I first left school. Rabbit trapping, uh, that was what I knew a little bit about because I'd practised a lot of that while I was going to school and I was living with my grandfather and one thing or another. And 
they has money to be made there and I could work as long as I liked and I used to go to rodeos at that early age and I didn't have to ask anybody for a day off. Um, sort of self-employed but mainly rabbit trapping and breaking in horses and that sort of stuff. That was my start after I left school. Okay. So when men like your grandfather and father passed on knowledge to you, like your early days, like let's say did 15-year-old John Stanton know a left lead from a right lead where he's just... Oh, listen, I knew how to catch the young horse and break him in. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, did somewhere... Uh, first of all, that, when, when I think I was eight-year-old, my grandfather was cutting draft horses and... I think they had seven or eight horse colts there and I remember he looked down under this colt and he said, this would be a good colt for John to practice on and um, they pulled him down and that was the first time I cut a horse. And you're eight year old. Yeah, and like he tolerated my age and how young I was and he was no doubt careful but he's very confident and he always put forward some part of what they're doing for me to have a practice at and I'm very grateful of that because he gave me a lot of things and a lot of practice that I think back on was a great opportunity. Yeah it sounds like he really included you and, and you learnt by being included. Yeah he I was in the lineup. Whatever he's doing, your turn now. You know. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so let's get back to your finished school and your trapping rabbits. Were you entering a few camp drafts? Were you entering a bronc ride? No, I never bothered about camp drafts, and I couldn't afford to cart a horse. Yep. I, I never, I never went to took a horse to a camp draft. Oh, until I was probably no. Oh, um, probably more than 30 years old. Really? You didn't start drafting until that late? No, I worked on horses and rode a lot of horses. And Why do I just think a bit about that? Um, yeah, it would have been, I'd have been 30 before I took a horse to a camp draft because I used to drive a bat and a horse and sulky. I had no way of getting a horse to a camp draft. Yeah, right. I just take a handful of gear and turn up and uh, always interested in the rodeo side of things. So there wouldn't be too many people have turned up to a rodeo on a horse and sulky now. They just wouldn't understand it, would they? They'd take photos of it. They'd want you to pull up and give us a photo of that, you know. Yeah. Okay, so you've started entering the saddle bronc, I'm guessing, the bullock ride. Just Did you enter sort of whatever was on the card? Yes, yes. Bar bulldog. No, I never bulldogged. I, I never had a horse to dog off, and I used to see fellas jumping off horses that had never been dogged off, and one thing or another. And that wasn't for me. I, I stayed for the riding events. Yep. And uh, so we're at your local Bushman's, you know, rodeo show. Are we talking no associations and Rafferty's rules? Like, because you were one of the pioneers. Well, the first, yes, the first, the first 
bullock rides that I rode in, there was no rules. You know, it just an old bushman that was probably a cattle owner and property owner, uh, but he'd be a practical man. He 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 know a bit about what he's looking for, and uh, a bullock ride probably. And then they started where you brought your own horse or the locals brought in a horse and they had a bit of a couple of buck jumping exhibitions and that's how it started. And it wasn't until 1946 that they had the first meeting of ABCRA. Were you at that meeting? No, but I was... Involved with the people that were, but the meeting was held at a hotel in Maitland. The main starter that organised that meeting was Ken Mackay from Dungog. Yep. Um, Ken Mackay, Mick Hook, Harold Andrews from Singleton. I knew them all and I knew them well because my dad knew them well, and a lady from Dungog, Kath Sternbeck, she was very important to the early days of the Northern Bushman's Carnival. Okay. So you set about getting some rules and uh, a membership uh, type system, things like that. I guess that was the agenda. Well, see, they, they were the people, them old fellas, they used to turn up, and judge the day's sports. During the war years, there was patriotic days where they'd have a day's sports, uh, sports events, pen, peg events, bending race, flag race, and nearly all of them would have a hunt, a jumping event, jumping over hunts about or two foot six high, that's about a metre or something like that. And... Um, That'd be the main event on the day, probably the hunt. Okay. And um, they'd have these day sports, and there'd be all sorts of things put on the program. The women would be throwing the broom, and uh, sometimes they'd have a rooster for the kids to catch, and all this. And odd times they'd fetch a buck jumper in, and somebody'd ride the buck jumper, and that's about how it all started. And they used to be patriotic days, and the money, the the profit would go to the war appeal. Okay. So how how old That's, were you during sort of this this time? Do you think, John? Well, I was born in 1931, and I'd be sort of uh, 12, 13, 14 yep. during those war years. So did you not yeah. see your dad the for a few years? the war started in about 1939, I think. I'm not sure about that. But I was about eight or nine when the war started, and I'm not sure dad didn't go straight away, but he wasn't long before they took him in. Did you not see him for a couple of years? I'm not sure, but I think he might have been in for four or five or six, four or five years. Yeah, right, eh? Like that sort of things at that stage of my life, uh, I knew he was away and I knew he was at the war and sometimes uh, occasionally be home on leave 
But my grandfather was, we lived at Tamworth. My grandfather was 11 miles out of Tamworth, and I, that's why I put in so much time with him. Yeah, righto. And did your, your grandfather, did he ride Bronx too, mate? No, 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 no. But my grandmother did. Your grandmother um, did? Oh, she was different. Yeah, right. She she was she was a tough old biddy, I'll tell you. Um, I can tell an unbelievable story about somebody broke in a horse for grandfather when she was 77. That's how old she was. And the horse bucked him off, and I was travelling about at the time. Actually, I was buying cattle and, and for a company in Sydney, and I visited them to straighten this horse out that my grandfather off. And I will never forget it. I got there late in the afternoon and uh, was very welcome. Yeah, right. And she's at the stove and she's cooking tea. And I will never forget it. She was 77. And I said, I really dropped in. I can spare a couple of afternoons and I'll ride that young horse for grandfather. And she looked back over her shoulder from where she was cooking tea and she said, oh, John, you don't have to worry about her. She said, I've been straightening her out. I've been riding the mare this week. Uh, I got her straightened out. She's not going too bad. And 77 and year old. She was 77 and she rode that mare and she had the mare had bucked the old fella off. He was older than her. But, oh, she was tough. She, and she could ride too, don't worry. She may not have been a hack rider. She may not have been um, uh, any sort of a fancy show rider. But she was handy in the bush. She was gritty, huh? And it didn't matter. She'd, she'd take a turn and you didn't have to ride the horse for her. She'd pull him around and get on the way she'd go. Yeah, but, right. um, she'd rode a lot of miles and she'd, they lived down over in the Barnard River when they first got married. And for the first part of her early family, three or four children, they pack horses in there and pack horses out. And they often talked about she rode out of there with a pack horse with a boy in each pack bag. Holy hell. They wasn't riding ponies in that scrub. They put them on a pack horse and brought them out. And her mother lived at Duncan's Creek near Tamworth. And they rode off the Barnet River over to Duncan's Creek uh, for Christmas and different holidays and that, and um, it was told to me that um, she'd ride a horse and lead a pack horse with, uh, she'd probably be nursing one and have one in each pack bag. Golly. I wouldn't believe it, but that's what they tell me, and uh, yeah, I heard it many times, I do believe it's right. She's, she's a bit different now with a... Mum's driving the Prado and the kids are in the back on a phone screen, each trying to stop and watch Oh, look, it's all different. But anyhow, we're not driving T-Model Fords anymore either. <laughs> That's good. The, the, word, the world has really moved on, but I'm not sure it's for the betterment of every 
body. We've got kids now running down the streets, bumping into each other, reading phones and all that sort of thing. But that's the way the world's gone. And uh, if you don't like it, put up with it. It's not going to change. No, no, sadly, mate. But um, now let's keep moving into your um, timeline. The 15, 18-year-old John Stanton, what were you sort of doing then, mate? Well, I was a full-on rabbit trapper. I'd done a bit of shearing. I wanted to learn to do about the bush because I never had any permanent fixed trade, but I liked the bush and I liked what I was doing and I wanted to be as versatile as I could and I did put in a lot of time breaking in horses. Um, I trapped rabbits in the winter time and used to travel to as many rodeos as I could in the northern part of New South Wales and uh, I didn't go probably away from there. Sydney show was about the boundary and um, I went there a good many times. Um, I just played my hand day by day, whatever is available and whatever suited me to really do at the time. Um, I was very fortunate in as much as I look back on it and I always liked what I was doing. I never had a job that I was told what to do and pushed about. Um, I always found something to do that I liked and I often say I've never really had to go to work. But whatever I was doing, I'd put in a full day and I wasn't frightened to stay on the job. Yep. So uh, when you were at your bronc riding peak, mate, who was who was the crew? The, who was the tough guys that you travelled with and and bumped with um, when you were at your peak? What sort of oh, names? Oh well, when I got up to about seventeen, uh, I ran into Stumpy Timmins. Well, he come to our place at Crindai, and he lived with us for a while. And he was a very experienced buck and horse rider, and he's four years older than me. And we used to buck six or eight horses every afternoon on Crendai Station, and we had a lot of fun, had a lot of fun. And uh, oh, I remember... His birthday was on the 1st of April and we were at Singleton and there was a buck jump show there and he had two horses. I forget the name of the show, but he had two horses and he had five pounder on one and three pounder on the other. And he's driving around Singleton on the day with a black motor car and a a voice thing on top of the motor car saying about his buck jump, buck jump show was on and he had this great buck and mare that come from Queensland and five pounds for the locals that could ride her. 
then he had his second horse was a bay horse and his bay gelding he was some sort of an outlaw and he had three pound on him so Stumpy and I went to the show that night and Stumpy was 21 that day and I would have been 17 and he got the five pound for riding the black mare and I got the three pound for riding the bay horse <laughs> awesome we we pocketed eight pound, which was a lot of money them times. What do you think the average guy was getting in wages? Them times? Yeah. Well, Dad was managing Quindai Station, and I just forget what he was getting about that time. I think he was getting about five or six pound a week, and he'd be getting his meat and the house to live in. Yeah, so... Uh, there, wasn't, there wasn't a big lot of money about... Nobody had a lot of money. Yep. The only people that had money to throw about then was the wool fellas because after the war, wool kicked up to be a big price and it put a lot of money in people's pockets that they'd never been used to having before. Yeah, right. It, it made a lot of rich uh, wool farmers. The first thing after the war, I think wool was a pound a pound or something like that. Yeah, I think that was the old saying, wasn't it? They were riding, the country was riding on the sheep's back, a pound of Yeah, pound. riding on the sheep's back. Yeah. Yeah. You're listening to the Swapping Lies podcast with Scotty Keogh. How long did you keep riding Bronx for, John? Till I was 38. You rode Bronx to a 38? Yes. Jeez, that's a fairly long career. Well, I never got... I never got hurt off a bucking horse. Um, I guess I was pretty lucky. But anyhow, I had a lot of early experience and I guess I guess in the right place at the right time. Yeah, and you had to handle uh, yourself, yeah. And I, I never I never feared any horse, I was never frightened, but people that get frightened they get hurt. And people that don't know, haven't had any experience, it's very dangerous for them. Yep. Right, mate. Can you remember the best I might bronc? have been very lucky too, but I, was, I never got hurt off a bucking horse. Can you I remember broke your my be- leg off a couple of times off bullocks. Oh, yeah, bloody bullocks. Bloody. Yeah. Can you remember Jumping the- off and landing crooked on your ankle and one thing or another. What yep. about the best bronc you ever rode? Can you remember that? The best one? Yeah. Sydney Show had a black mare called the Black Widow and she was never rode and the Queen was at the Sydney Show in about 1954, I think, something like that. And um, they offered me £25 to take the ride on her. If I rode her, they'd pay me £25. Nothing to get on, but if I stayed there, I got £25, and I did ride the mare, and I got the money, and I do believe that's the only time she was ever rode. Yeah, right. And so what, whether she was the best one or not, but that's the one most talked about. Yeah, right. So um, tell me about the phase between the camp drafting coming on, so like You've rode Bronx all through your 20s. You're obviously a horse breaker and a bushman. Well, I was always 
interested. I was always interested in horses that was uh, helping to work cattle, horses that wanted to work cattle. I was always interested in that sort of horse. And that developed, I was on the road with cattle coming into Crindai from Spring Ridge Way. And there's an old butcher fella, had a butcher yard, and an old brown pony. And as I come down the road, he was yarding up a killer. And he was fetching this killer up on this brown pony to put in the killing yard. And I was lucky enough to see that. And I'd never seen anything like that brown pony covering that killer that he's fetching up the killer yard. And I said, I'm going to have a horse like that one day. I want a horse that'll block cattle. And that was the first big dream I had about riding a cattle horse. I saw this old butcher fellow hanging on the front of the saddle and the pony, like a good dog, putting the, the vela in the yard. And that's all he done with that old pony, saddle it up and run, run up and put it in the yard. And that was the start of the dream of riding a horse that could work cattle. So did you have anyone that could really guide you with that or was there a lot of trial and error years? What sort of happened? Oh, tell me about it. But in those years, early days, I was fortunate enough to meet up with Frank Scanlon and he was a very, very good dog man and very good with horses, very good, very good. Always had a good light mouth horse and he had horses that when he went to do any cattle work, the horse helped him. He didn't have to pull his horses or spur them or anything. They knew which end the cow's head was, and they certainly knew that cows didn't run away backwards. Um, They'd block cattle and were very quick. He liked the radium-bred horses. He he had the last of the radium horses. And Frank, more or less... His home was available to me any time, and I put in a lot of time with Frank, and we got on very, very, very well, and he could break a horse in, and he'd break a horse in and put a light foundation under him, and he was always working towards making the horse, uh, helping the horse be interested in working cattle. My dad didn't worry about that too much. He'd make a very quiet horse and easy to do things with. But Frank was always interested in trying to bring the cattle fence up in his horses. He had good working dogs and the horse he rode, he wanted it to work the stock as well as himself. You're right. So can you remember your first run in a camp draft? Yes. Where was that at? Um, 
Alan Woods, Kevin Mataggart, myself, we went to Cooler and I had a creamy Galloway horse and we took him over there. They wanted the bulldog off him and there was a camp draft there and I rode him in the camp draft and that was the first camp draft I won. Yeah, right. But he was a good pony and the fact that I'd been riding him and trying to let him work cattle and leave him alone, he was a pretty good cattle pony, a very good cattle pony and no doubt I rode him in the camp draft and he knew how to work a cow. And that was the first camp draft I rode in and and I won that at Coola. Do you know how and, old you uh, would have been, mate? Be yours. How old would you have been, John? Uh, well, look, I, it, it's going back in the days when Alan Woods and Kevin Mataggart and them fellas, because uh, I knew them and they, they were staying with us uh, and... I forget how we took the horse over there, but anyhow, we went to Cooler and I would make a wild guess at this, but it would be probably 47 or 48, 1940, probably 1948. And did the but camp drafts? That was my, my first start in camp drafting, but I never got... I couldn't afford to cart a horse about. I'd watch the camp drafts, but I didn't compete in it in camp drafts until seriously till about 62 or 3, 1962 or 3. Okay, so in 1962 or 3, did the camp drafts have any formal rules, mate? Was there any? Oh, yes. There was? It was all in full swing then. Yep. And, uh, oh, yes. Oh, they had little rule books that you could put in a shirt pocket and everybody knew and studied the rules and the judges judged to the rules. Uh, today, oh, well, the rule book always said four for course and 60 for horsework. Today it's 60 for course and four for horsework. The horse will run around opening his mouth and the judge will take nothing off for that. And if you say to the judges, most of them, what would you take off for that horse lugging on the second peg? And they say, oh, don't take any notice of that. Camp draft horse will do that. They don't if they're trained. But that's that's how it's gone. See, half the time you have to judge when the show's over the count the cattle out the gate and walk them two mile over a hill or something, most of them wouldn't have the experience to count the cattle out the gate, let alone drive them anywhere. But it's got that big, judges are scarce, and in our part of the world, there's a lot of them that are definitely not stockmen. Mate, would you have ever predicted the camp draft growth in your wildest dreams? I'll have to ask you again. What? Would you ever have predicted the growth of the sport, the numbers, like in your wildest dreams? Oh, listen, I never, 
I never even thought about helicopters. Yeah, I suppose. You know, the world has got, it's just got so big and, like, we got people now that go camp drafting that's never drove a mob of cattle down the road. Yeah, yep. Never. They couldn't count cattle. And you know when they ride in the yard, they've got no experience and... They're in the yard chasing the cattle around before they cut out, asking their auntie which one to take. You know, the judges let that go. Oh, look, we won't go into that. That's, that gets way offline to what it used to be. So, I remember the early day rules, and to lay that down in front of people these days, they wouldn't believe it. Yep. They wouldn't believe the early day rules. And... Uh, I remember the first change in rules. The first change in camp draft rules were the judge would be up the front, the competitor would ride to the judge, he'd point out which beast he was going to take, the man would ride in with a paint stick and paint that steer, there was no change in your cattle, and the judge would... Judge how you rode your horse into the mob, how the interest the horse showed, how you rode the horse, because they're horsemen and stockmen. And there were so few that it wasn't hard to get one to do the job that did know. And them times they were working cattle themselves and they had working horses on the properties. Only just a little while ago, my daughter was talking to a fella and a family that had a big station at Canamble, and they got talking about horses, and he said that one time they had 40 horses, 40 working horses on the place. Today they've got six motorbikes and no horses. Yeah, yeah, that's the time. That's, that's how it's turned around, and... We don't have the work on place anymore. They got their properties fenced in and they got it into lanes. They draft their cattle in the yard up on the post with the stick rails, pulling gates and one thing or another. And it's gone, it's changed. And camp drafting's got bigger, but the experience in the camp riders, uh, it's not there like it was. Well, I guess, yeah, it's just, it's the time. Now, getting back to the change of the rules, the paint man would go in and paint the steer. Then the judge would say go, and the competitor would ride in and cut that steer off and show his horse and show what he could do and be judged for it. And... Mostly them times the competitors wore white moleskin trousers and or jodhpurs. And the women used to complain about the blue paint on the trousers. It came up at the meetings and they decided then that they'd paint the steer after the run. So the bloke didn't get the blue the competitor didn't get the blue paint on his trousers, so the women caused the first change in camp draft rules. 
Damn it. That is exactly right. <laughs> so, now tell me, what age or year did you start uh, coming to Warwick? I don't know, but Tony Varney won both drafts. Tony, a man won both camp drafts? Yes. I thought a, Jeff a, Schrader would have been the only one to win both. Oh, no. Tony Barney won both yeah. camp drafts, and he's riding a brown horse that Donnie Cross sold him. Yeah, right, eh? Donnie Cross is a good camp draft man for a lot of years yeah. and a great person. Uh, he's now not enjoying the best of health, but never mind. He's had too many birthdays. He's like the rest of us. Yeah, well. But he trained that horse and had him, and Tony Barnea bought the horse off Donnie Cross, and he won both camp drafts. And uh, I can nominate a few fellas that was there that was very good competitors. Charlie Floor was a well-known camp draft fella early days there. I guess that would have been back in the... Early 60s, 63 or 4, but the records would show when Tony Barney won both them drafts, and that's the first year I went to Warwick. Okay, so when did you start going overseas and looking at different bloodlines and looking at dif- different methods? When when did that come about? About 1974 or five. And that, how did you even organise it? I mean, nowadays you get on the internet or you call someone up and a trip's organised. Were you flying blind? Did someone take you around? How did it happen? Well, it's a bit of a story, no doubt. I, I was always breeding horses. And the Stock Horse Society had started. And I did have the first 23 horses that the Stock Horse Society registered. You had number one to 23? One to 23. And I bred Cecil Bruce. And where I'm sitting now, I can look across and see the spot where Cecil Bruce was born. He was born here at Maxwell. But I had the first 23 horses that the Stock Horse Society branded. I do hold the first numbers of the first 23 horses. And they were mainly horses that went back to thoroughbred breeding. Probably had a bit of pony in a few of them. And after I got into camp drafting, those horses, you had to get after them and feed them well and to get them looking good that you wanted to go to a camp draft. When you got there, the horse tied up and not doing any exercise much for a couple of days. He pretty soon would show you what he's bred for, speed. And they'd be, you'd have them nicely trained and light at home, but when you go there and they'd start to tuck up and feel a bit good, so I realised we wanted more condition on our horses that you didn't have to feed them up to make them look good. Have the horses naturally uh, a bit more fleshy. And I sold a good few colts 
and had a bit of spare money, the only spare money I had in them early days. And Arthur Winter and Frank McNamara and myself went for a trip around the world looking for a sire I could bring home to put over the mares I had. And that was the start of me wanting to breed the horses with a bit more flesh on them. And we got off in America, and the first week I was there, I ran into the people that owned Dock Bar, and I never ever did find any bloodlines that suited what I wanted better than the Dock Bar horses. And that was the start of me wanting to bring home to this country um, horses with a bit of flesh on and it saved me building them up and making them look good to a rodeo you could bring them in out of the paddock and tuck them up for a day or two and you're ready to go and your horse's mind was better and uh, when I got there actually the first couple of days I was there I met Greg Ward and I met Zach Woods, who was in charge of cutting horses in America. And Matt Hoffman and myself, we do have the honour and the credit of starting cutting in Australia. And when I met Zach Woods, oh, John Stanley's, I corresponded with you, I said, no. He corresponded with Matt Hoffman. I was the president. He was the secretary. Well, Zach Woods looked after me, and he sent me from one cutting horse trainer to the other, and we were there for a couple of months. And we had a good look around America, and we never saw anything that we liked better than the dock bar horses. And... Doc Jack Frost's name come up several times. So I went back to North Dakota and the fellow named Stanley Johnson owned Doc Jack Frost. And he was the only Doc Bar horse that run a AAA time on the track. Hmm. He was a sure enough, he was the only Doc Bar. And I bought a cult home by him and eventually after a fair bit of experimenting uh, I got on my feet and I did bring home five horses from America five colts and the last one I brought home was a horse called Boone Luck and I bought him as a yearling this is only bragging, but I guess if you've done it, you can talk about it. In 2001, I broke, I got him in about 85, I think, or early 1980, and I broke him in and I said to my son when I got him broken in, there's only one thing wrong with this horse. I have got enough of them. And I put him in the paddock with, with my mares, 
and Kerry Packer, I talked to him, he wanted to exchange a service with me. I said, no, I've bought him for myself and I don't want to be taken outside mares. And Bill Graham from Morungo, Marumbo Stud, he offered the same thing. And uh, we won't go into all that, but uh, with my own mares, in 19, in 2001, the Quarter Horse Association awarded Boone Luck High Point Leading Sire of Performance Horses for 2001. Hmm. Now, I picked him out as a foal, and I was very proud of him winning that because a lot of studs went over there and paid a lot of money for size, and they never won it. Yep. But I picked out a foal, broke him in, put him with my own mares, and those foals in 2001, I have the trophy right here. They awarded him for the sire of the year. Mm, good stuff. I bet you wish you had him 40 years earlier. No. No. The experience I gained before I got that horse allowed me to pick the horse. Yeah, yeah true. Because I didn't have anybody helping me. And I saw what I liked in the horse as a young horse. And I guess there's a lot of luck attached to that too. There's no way you can look at a green frog and tell how far he's going to jump. <laughs> there's no way. What and about So where and how did you meet Ray Hunt? I mean, you brought him out to Australia. Oh, well, I was with a very, very great horseman, uh, uh, from over there, um, Greg Ward. Very, very good. Very, very good. I enjoyed his company and he looked after me. I stayed with him a week or so and he said, I want him to come out here and give us a break and in school just to change things a little bit. Because them fellas used a lot of ropes when they break in, and my grandfather would never let you do very much with a rope. He was quite different, and I was getting a good result, but I was impressed with Greg Ward, and he introduced me to Ray Hunt. And Ray Hunt came to Greg Ward's with Bill Dorison, who was the fellow that trained Ray Hunt. And I had the pleasure of having a couple of days at Greg Ward's place in the company of Ray Hunt and Bill Dorrison. And they were both pretty special self-trained horse people. But... Ray Hunt was a very, very good horse roper. He could rope a horse with the front foot at the gallop or uh, very, very good with the rope. And 
He had a lot of things that brought up good habits in horses, but I never ever did like the rope very much. My grandfather turned me against the rope uh, for a pretty good reason. He said, you rope a young horse, and the first lesson you give him, you're teaching him how to pull. And then you're a long time taking the pull out of him. And how did you that's grandfather? what I learned about ropes very early in life. But I use a fair bit of rope now, don't worry, but uh, I mixed it up a little bit with the experience of being with Greg Ward and, and Ray Hunt and talking to Donaldson. Um, I've changed things around considerably uh, to suit myself. Yeah, so getting back to your grandfather in those days, so say you got a, an untouched horse in the yard, how did, yes. how did they get a halter on him, John? Well, okay. He always said, like, his sons, most of them were pretty good, ride a bucking horse pretty good. And he said, there's no way... You can match the muscle of man with horse. And if you're riding a bucking horse and you think you're going to strap yourself down on him and outdo him by your brute strength, hang in and hook onto him and pull his head and strap yourself in tight, it's the rhythm of the rider the coordination and the timing that allows man to ride a strong bucking horse and ride him easy. If you're going to pitch him, put your muscle up against him, it's no event. The horse will win and he'll pump you out and knock you up. But if you can glide and ride like dancing, if your timing and rhythm is right, the bucking horse is no trouble. So I think, but that's quite an arguable point. Everybody's got their own idea, but that's my honest opinion about that. My grandfather always said, you rope a horse, he's too strong for you. So if you've got him in a good yard and he's trotting around you, keep trotting him till you take a bit of the strength and energy away from him. And he'd trot round you and round you and you keep, he'd always have a, a long limb off a, a tree or a bush and he'd keep the horse going by dragging it and keeping it behind the horse. And the first sign the horse would show, he'll stop and look at you. Take advantage of that. He's starting to give up and think about what it's all about. And you start him with the bush and send him the other way. And it's no time if you trot him far enough. He'll be trotting around you without any fear. And you've got a 10-foot bush or something. It's no time before you've got it on his back. He's trotting around, bouncing the bush up and down on his back sneak a rope into the bush and put it on his head 
And that's how the old fella had taught us to put the rope on a horse. You do not develop any fear. And it becomes a very light feel with very little challenge coming from the horse. And if ever you tell of a better way, I'd be pleased if you tell me, even though I'm not wanting to break in horses anymore. Hmm. I'm always anxious to learn of a better way. To catch a horse and catch him and keep him light and have him without fear and without wanting to challenge you too much, take the energy out of him before you put the rope on him. Can you follow that? Yeah, absolutely, mate. It's, sometimes you put a little uh, unnecessary fear in, a, in an animal that's already got fear in him. And the first lesson they learn, they do learn best. They do learn to pull. They do learn to push on you. And then you've got to take it out of them. Absolutely. And, and I, I break in horses for a living, as you know, and, and, the, and the average horse owner that turns up in their float, they might have put one bad habit in his head. They might have put 10 bad habits in his head, but they've put something in there. And all that's got to come out before we go forward. So uh, it takes a hand to handle a foal. I think everyone who thinks they own a mare should be their own foal's handler. And I don't agree, I don't agree with that at all. I think we've all got skills. And if yours is baking bread, go bake bread and let the horseman handle your foal. That's what I really think. Well, now, listen, I don't really interested in this, but I had a smarty tell me one time, I'd done a film on handling foals. Oh, he said, that's all that. that. He said, the thing to do with a foal is the first week he's born, catch him and handle him and he never forgets it. And he said, all the hard work is gone. Well, I don't say any more about that, but that's as far away from what I want to do as you could ever possibly do or attempt. Yeah, My favourite way is if a foal is five to seven months old running in the bush with his mother, take him clean away from his mother and the instinct and the habits that the mare has put in that foal, you want that in the foal when you first catch him. So that you can play your experience against his learning. And what his mother taught, taught him, you need that for the foal to put up some sort of a challenge to give you something to work on. Because if the foal comes in that he's half broken in from the day he's born, he'd be the worst horse to broke in you ever broke in. Yep, absolutely. All the fields off him. No feel, and he don't try to do anything. He just sits there like a a fat man in a chair and gets nothing done. But the seven-month-old foal that comes out of the bush, take him away from his mother and don't push him too hard and catch him with a limb off a tree and let him trot around, take his energy off him, and then when he starts to face you, you've got him half broken in. Because he's got no energy or not a lot of energy and he becomes interested in you and he becomes so easy to teach because once you start teaching him, oh, well, listen, I shouldn't be saying this, but 
once you start challenging a foal or any horse, the first lesson you give him or the lesson you give him is learning to defend himself and fight you. But if you can make him want to join hands with you and be a friend from the first day, that's what you got. Absolutely, mate. Love it. Love it. Hey, folks, Scotty Keogh here. Now, a wise man told me once, if you're going to take advice off someone, just make sure he does it for a living because if he gets it wrong, it affects his table. Now, when it comes to feeding horses, I feed Riverina products. They've assembled this product with not only the best team of nutritionists available, but also collaborating with some of Australia's most prolific horsemen who have shown more horses and won more blue ribbons than anyone. So if you want to do the best thing by your horse, trust the professionals and use Riverina. You're listening to the Swapping Lies podcast with Scotty Keogh. I've got a list of questions a mile long. The whole other lifestyle that you've led, we haven't even touched on, John, is the cattle industry side of things. I tell you, I was driving with my dad before he went to the war a bit. That's how I got the pony that I had to ride when he went to the war. He traded his cart horse, a very good cart horse that he used for driving, to some young fellas for a blue pony they had. And they took the cart horse and we took the pony, and that's the horse I had while he was away at the war. But, oh, I'll cut into that story. Dad came home on leave. By this time, I'd had a, a fair bit of time with my grandfather, and he's a bit of an old villain for a bit of entertainment. And he'd often put a saddle on a milking cow to give me a ride on a milking cow and the saddle. And they used to buck me off, and he loved it. Anyhow, when the cows had bucked, they'd throw their head about, and they'd jerk me down with the rein. So after a little while, he we worked out tied the buck and rein up onto the top of their head. Well, then I had a short buck and rein and a firm halt, and they couldn't jerk me off of the head and they couldn't buck me off. So I had a lot of experience with a lot of busters off milking cows. And when I started riding them a bit, the old fellow then had put me on a horse or a pig root a bit or something like that. And it went on from there. I started looking for them, you know. Uh, I thought I, yeah, it turned me right into the rodeo job, and that was my start. Yeah, right. But now, getting back to Dad, he come home off leave, and by this time I'd probably be 13, 12, 13, 14, and... We're at Bowling Alley where Grandfather lived at that time and Dad was on leave and he was well known as a bucking horse rider and an old fellow named Tuji King come down the road leading the bay Galloway horse and it bucked him off and he wanted Dad to ride him because Dad was supposed to be a bucking horse rider. Grandfather said, oh, don't you worry, put John on him. They put me on the horse. I rode him down the road 50 yards, 
and he walked along good. I turned him around to come back, and I went to canter him, and he started to buck. And he's only pig rooting straight ahead, but he threw the old fella. But I, I was handling him all right. And he bucked up past where the family were on the road, and I kept him going up the road. I thought this was great. And by the time I come back, Dad had the horse bought off 2G King for me. I think he gave him two pound for him, and that was my first practice horse. Yeah, right, eh? And that's how I come to get him. And, uh, oh, the story goes on. I had him for a long time. You could ride him all day and give him a bit of a tickle up, uh, up past three or four in the afternoon, and he'd still give you a bit of a go. Perfect. Yeah, he loved it. Anyhow, I might have got off the track there a bit, but... That's all right. That's... Dad had the horse bought for not before I got back on him. Yeah. Oh, perfect. So let's talk about the meat and cattle job, mate. How did that come about? Right. Well, now, I broke both legs 11 months apart. One, I broke one at Tamba Springs, and uh, I think I broke the other one at might have been Stroud or somewhere there on the coast. And it interfered with me walking. I wasn't able to walk too good, and that interfered with me rabbit trapping and one thing or another. So I went to Sydney to take a job driving for a meat operator. And the day of the interview, it come around to where I thought, I'm not getting this driving job. So I asked him about the interview, what I was going to... Was he interested in me as a driver? No, he said, I don't want you for a driver. I'd like you to buy cattle for me. And so help me, the next week I was buying cattle for him, and I don't know why. I never had any big education, but I knew cattle a little bit, and he was a city fella, and he just wanted a bush boy that knew a bit about cattle, didn't know anything about weights, but I bought cattle for him for six and a half years. And that gave me a good feeling around the cattle yards and how to operate in sale yards and one thing or another. And I left him after six and a half years, a great boss, a great boss. He didn't want me to leave. But I got an auctioneer's license and come to Maxwell. The main reason why I left the cattle buying job, too much car driving and too many miles, and I always drove green motor cars, and every three months or so I'd get run off the road. And I didn't realise till years after I somehow come up with a yellow car and the road was six foot wider forever after and I never owned another green car. I remember that. Yes. White, red or yellow is the colour for cars. Green cars, they camouflage and you'll always be getting run off the road with them. Let me bug it. So I suffered that for a lot of years and that old man... That old boss I had, oh, I had a lot of trouble leaving him. 
and he offered me share, half share in the business and all this sort of stuff. But I knew I wouldn't last forever driving a road buying cattle, and that's why I quit that side of the cattle job. And I come here in 1962 into Kennedy and Co. And it's now 2023, and my grandson is running the business. That must be rewarding. We've we've had it ever since. Tell me about the worst of the cattle depression. How little were cattle worth, and and what did that? I mean, what did that do? Well, back in the seventies, this is the worst comparison and the best comparison of how it was and how it is. Jeff Seckham from Ebor brought down 10,000 calves. They sold for five pound a unit. The 10,000 calves made him 50 pound. Hmm. Of course, you could do something with 50 pound, but that was the low part of the cattle market back in the early 70s. I think we were in dollars then. Fifty dollars he got for the ten thousand calves, and about eighteen months ago, I was looking in a store at some rump steak or one of the good cuts of steak, forty-six dollars a kilo. Yep. And Jeff said it was in dollars these days. It is in seventy-four. I think dollars come in in sixty-eight. It had been in dollars. He sold ten thousand calves for fifty dollars, and. Eighteen months ago, I saw a kilo of steak for forty-six dollars. Yeah, that'd be right. It's right, all right. Yeah. I I didn't read that out of a book. <laughs> it happened. A bloody oath. Now, oh yeah, and the cattle job today has turned a lot of people upside down. Cattle would be probably twenty percent of what they were two years ago. That'd be right. It is right. And the price of land got at a very high level. People kept buying it and cattle kept rising. And you could get enough for your cattle at those high prices to justify the high price of the land. Yeah. But there's a lot of people taking a bad photo these days because the land is still up there and what the land produces the cattle being at 20% of what they were, there's a lot of people very sick about the way things have turned around. Yeah, I'm sure. The cattle at 20% and the price rise in everything that it takes to run a property, they're not making enough off their property to run it, let alone get a dividend from what they've outlaid in their property. Yep. 100%. It's turned upside down completely, and I'm out of it. I don't own any more land. I'm out of it completely. I sold out nearly three years ago. Well, I didn't sell out. A bloke come along and bought me out, and I'm so grateful of my luck because I wasn't advertising the place. I just he just come along and said to the agent. I want you to buy me that place. Well, when they come along wanting to buy, that's usually the time to sell. Yeah. And the only decent money you get out of property is when you sell it. 
Now, tell me, we're just going to jump subjects again here, two horsemen. In the little booklet I saw you wrote, you wrote Vic Goff was one of the best, the best horsemen you saw in your era. He's the best all-round horseman that I met. Yep. I might have saw fellas and run into them and not knowing how good they were. Vicky Goff was, he could ride a bucking horse. And he had jumping horses, he had camp draft horses, and I knew him. I knew him from when he was very young, and he was a talented horseman. And I believe there was anything he could do. He could do horses' teeth, he could chew them, he could ride a bucking horse. He didn't have to get somebody to do anything with a horse. Whatever he wanted to do, he had the ability and knowledge to do it. And I, in all honesty, I think he's probably the best all-round all horseman that that I... Well, I run into a lot of fellas in America and I know most of them in Australia, but I give him the credit of being on top of the list. Yeah, right. What about, tell me about Stumpy. I barely remember him. I was only a kid. Stumpy Timmons? Yes. I've seen him playing about. I've seen him buck off horses or jumping off or whatever, but I'd never back a horse to throw Stumpy Timmons uh, especially if he said, well, if he bucks off, I'll give you a second chance. But Stumpy could ride a bucking horse. No question. He could ride a bucking horse. And Alan Woods was a great bucking horse rider. And so was Stumpy Timmons. Vicky Goff was very, very good. But uh, I'd hold Stumpy up as being probably uh, the best or one of the best of two or three that I met. Now, I've got to be fair in saying that was my experience amongst the people and the men that I met. Yes. There's probably other people, other men in Australia that I never met that probably would be great. But out of the fellas that I knew, I had the opportunity to see them riding bucking horses, um, Woodsy and... Stumpy, I'd have to put them on top. Right. You're listening to the Swapping Lies podcast with Scotty Keogh. Well, uh, uh, put in the later part of my years, I've had, I've had my name on 13 different properties. I've become a sort of a, a buy-sell man. I've got my grandfather to thank for that. He always said, never buy country west of the New England Highway. When you're thinking about buying a price, look for rainfall. If the property's got hasn't got decent rainfall, let someone else own it. If you can't have land, you've got to have water. And always look for position. Never buy a place way down a bad road somewhere. Never. Always look for a good position for a property. Then if you want to sell it, you won't have any trouble moving out and getting your money back. And I never advertised a place for sale. Because of what Grandfather told me, I think that was the cause in a good position, good rainfall. There's always somebody knocking on the door 
wanting to buy your place. And don't ever buy a bale of hay if it's a dry time because the feed merchant will end up with all the money and the drought will be over. You'll have a big bill to pay and you'll still lose some stock because you can't give them enough feed to really do them a lot of good. Oh, there's other things. That old fella, and he said the mistake a lot of fellas make when they're feeding cattle, they'll come through the gate and tip the feed out. Take your feed to the back fence and tip it out. Then your cattle won't be laying at the gate waiting for you to come with the feed. Tip your feed out in the back corner of the paddock and they'll forage around going to water and coming back and they'll pick up something that'll help them. But if you've got them laying at the gate waiting for the feed lorry to come, he said it won't be a success. There's a lot of things the old fella told me about when I lived with him that's helped me through life. Yeah, well, he sounded like you put a lot of it to good use, mate. So um, that's that's terrific, John. So uh, I've been I've been lucky, and Scott, you can't get through life without the help of good friends and people. It's no good thinking you can stand on your own two feet and do it. The support of your friends and that is what is very important. I think. That's my experience in my lifetime. John, I think we're going to need a part two. I really do. I've enjoyed this this yarn we're having, and I really hope your family and uh, the many friends you have across Australia get a chance to listen to what an amazing life and career you've led. Uh, I believe we've only just scratched the surface, really. I could talk all day. You're very welcome for it. Thank you very much for your time, John. We'll be in touch. Cheers for now. You're listening to the Swapping Lies podcast with Scotty Keogh. If you want to take your horsemanship to the next level with downloadable videos, equipment, merch and DVDs with proven results, visit skhorsemanship.com.au and find out why they sell in nine countries. With Scotty's clear, understandable methods with no gimmicks, just authentic horsemanship that will make your next ride a better one.